We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Joir. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. Hello and welcome to 10 Questions. Today I'm interviewing Australian actor Damon Herriman. Damon started off as a child actor on The Sullivans. We're going to talk about that and The Big Steel. He's gone on to appear in Love My Way, Laid and Secret City. He was In Excess manager Chris Murphy in the miniseries In Excess Never Tear Us Apart. And more recently, he starred in the Cronulla Riots film Down Under. His US credits are pretty spectacular. He's appeared in Breaking Bad, Wilfred, I had to mention that one, the Clint Eastwood film J. Edgar, five seasons of the FX series Justified, and more recently the HBO Cinemax series Quarry. In this interview, he talks about his relationship with his dad, his dad who brought him up, he was a single dad, his path to Hollywood, and working with such greats as Pacino, DiCaprio, Eastwood, and the writer and director David Mamet. I really enjoyed doing this interview, particularly because he interrogates the questions I ask. And as usual, I start by asking Damon when he was most happy. Interesting thinking about that question. Uh, When was I most happy? It's hard to really answer that question completely honestly, because I think nostalgia colours that so much. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like... Uh, you know, there were certainly times as a child that in my memory I feel like they were some of the happiest times of my life. But when I think back, I go, no, but you were hating going to school and, you know, yeah. all those things that, that you know, that are that worry you or, or whatever when you're a kid. But kind of in the, the rose-coloured glasses version of it, you kind of mem- remember that time as being a very happy time. So I certainly have happy memories from childhood, but I particularly have a, a very happy memory of the year of, of being 29, which was 1999. I, have, I, I feel like, again, it might be coloured by nostalgia, but I feel like that was the happiest year. You sat in returns. Of my life. Yeah, I guess it was, it was that thing of... I, I felt... Um, I felt... Uh, I, I just moved out of... I was, I was living um, in Wollstonecraft up until then in Sydney. I'd grown up in Adelaide. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lived in Alice Springs for part of my childhood uh, and then moved to Sydney, lived in Wollstonecraft. And in 99, I moved to Camperdown, um, in, in, which is, you know, for people in Sydney would know Camperdown, but people out of Sydney, it's a, you know, in, in a kind of a cool, fun inner city. Yeah, right. Whereas Wollstonecraft was more of a leafy suburban vibe. And... Um, I moved in uh, with a, a girl who was one of my best friends and it was just a great year. It wasn't even a particularly good career year. It was sort of in a patch where I wasn't working that much. I was sort of mainly earning money doing voiceovers at the time. But I just had a great time in that year. I just remember it being fun. Yeah, and yeah. I, you know, I'm sure there were other years that were fun, but that one sticks out to me where I just was really enjoying being alive at that time at that age that's great yeah i i mean well 29 is an interesting time for for people because it's either the year where it's a year of change often it's quite tumultuous Mm. you know often some it's like a career change or a 
or a relationship breakup or or a death. But you had you had beer and skittles for you, so yeah, um, it was it was, <laughs> and it was also you know I was still uh, you know you're in your twenties, you still have that kind of youthful yeah. exuberance of being in your twenties, but you've kind of learned a lot more about life by then too. Yeah. So you you're kind of in this nice patch where you still love going to parties all night but you can also have interesting dinner party conversations <laughs> you're making yeah. trends you can have both yeah. um you still got the youthful exuberance man right it hasn't has not <laughs> left you <laughs> question two who would you like to apologize to and why i i don't feel like i have anyone specific that i would want to apologize to but i i would I want to apologise to anyone I've hurt, I would think. I, I really um, uh, try to live a life where I am very conscious of not hurting people. Yeah, um, right. So I, I, if I'm going to say or do something, I tend to think about how I would react if someone else said or did that to me mm. and try to work out a way to... Um, not do it or to lessen the impact. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Uh, was that always part of your... The, the way you operated or did you learn empathy like that later on? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't... I don't know. I think... I mean, I feel like my mum probably instilled that in me to, to, mm. to some degree about, you know, being being nice to people and not hurting people and that's not a nice thing to say or you shouldn't, mm. you know, shouldn't make someone feel bad. Um, but I think I've, yeah, I don't know. I, but I also have just been always very aware of, um, well, I wouldn't like, like I've never, for example, never cheated on a girlfriend. And, um, you, you know, a part of that is, I guess, just the, well, you shouldn't do that. It's a moral thing. But it's part of it is also just because... I've been cheated on and it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's like, well, I don't quite know if you've been through how horrible that is, mm. how you could then just go and do it because you felt how horrible it was to have it done to you. So um, I don't know. I guess that's just a... It's great. It's just something that I've always had in my way of thinking. So I would just apologise to anybody I had hurt and say that I'm... Yeah, my intention was probably not to do that or, or at least you know if it, if it was then i was probably misguided i'm sorry that's nice man it's, it's very good um question three buddy what's your greatest regret well anyone who knows me well adam knows that i'm constantly filled with regret <laughs> there's no there is no there's no one great regret um it's a kind of a daily kind of torment of regret <laughs> Um, or I'll almost certainly be regretting a question or two from this interview. Um, mm, yeah. When you leave. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, quite, <laughs> I'm quite a regretful, regretful person. Um, I, I, I am, I am uh, yeah, someone who, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible, it's a horrible thing, attribute to have to be constantly regretting things because it's you just find you know that you, you, any email you've sent or any conversation you've had or any decision you've made, you, you're weighing up whether that's going to fall into the regret category. And I tell you what, more often than not, 
There's something to regret. 100%, mate. You know, Amanda always asks me why I don't want to go out. It's because I'll probably go out, socialise, and say something I'll regret and then hate myself for 24 hours afterwards. Okay, so you understand. Oh, totally, mate. Totally. You get it. Um, yeah, so, you know, I will literally just be beating myself up after a great night. Right. For about two days. Oh, absolutely. And, and sometimes I'm regretting things that I've created a story in my head that is worthy of regret. And the, I discovered that the person who I thought might have been offended by something that I'm now regretting saying hadn't even heard it or hadn't thought, thought, it, thought it was hilarious and didn't care. Like, <laughs> I create the, the... It's like I will go out of my way to create the most regrettable version of something yeah. so I can regret it the most and just be, you know, in a, in, in, in a kind of a... A, a, a niggled kind of state for uh, the next sort of forty-eight hours. We should uh, be kind, kind to ourselves. I think that's the the thing. Is why, like, no, why can't? Wouldn't it be great to be one of those people who who has the people have a phrase, no regrets. That's yeah. a saying. Yeah. <laughs> no, no regrets. Oh, whatever. Just live your life. No regrets. No regrets. Ten billion regrets. <laughs> I'll see you on no regrets. <laughs> Raise you. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awesome, mate. Well, question four: What will you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? Well, I suppose. I mean, I don't have kids, and I suppose. I mean, I always thought I would have kids. I would I had no doubt I would have kids, um, and you know, I'm forty six now, and I so and I don't have kids. So I don't know if I will or not. I guess it's, it's possible, but it's also not necessarily likely. I guess it's... So, look, you know, I feel like the people I know that do have kids, um, I, you know, talk about it in such a way that makes me feel like it's something I require to, ha- to have a satisfactory yeah, life. Yeah. But I don't necessarily feel it myself. It's mm. almost like... I feel like it must be the case because people say that it is um, rather yeah, than yeah. me actually feeling a void of any kind. Yeah. I mean, you, do you sit here uh, by yourself at night and go, I wish I had kids? Or No. No. Yeah. No, I don't. No. Um, but I also see friends with their kids and hear them talking about, you know, amongst the lack of sleep and inability to do anything ever again that they feel like doing when they want to do it, they say that despite that, it's the best thing they ever did and yeah, yeah. wouldn't have it any other way. So I can only assume that's true um, <laughs> because most of them say it. But uh, I also, I guess, you know, you don't miss what you don't, you've never had or what you don't know. No. So I don't, I, don't, I don't miss it. But I, um, I guess, yeah, there's still a part of me that thinks, well, I guess that's the next thing to do and 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 that would be for me who who is in a sense still living in a way like I was when I was 29 you know nothing much has changed well yeah that was your big year where you said this is how I'm going <laughs> to live the rest of my life this is the best year of my life I just try and keep <laughs> yeah. like this from now on um so I guess you know that would be very much a new phase um to 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 but if that didn't happen um I, I'm I, I feel pretty satisfied anyway you know I feel like if this is what it is, I have great friends, um, family I love, and uh, and and uh, work that I've been really fortunate to, to be getting to do. So I feel like I'd be pretty satisfied anyway. Yeah, mate. From an outsider's perspective, you're living a great life. Um, 
Question five. Question five. Who is the person who most influenced you and how? Probably my dad. Uh, my, my dad um, brought my brother and I up um, as a single father from when I was five. And so I would have to say it would be him because I spent my formative years with him. Yeah. Um, and my dad's a really funny guy. I think I probably got my sense of humour to a large degree from my dad um, certainly instilled that idea of you know um, of manner thinking you know manners was, mm. was a big deal with him and very much so because I was acting as a kid I, I did a lot of acting when I was around 10, 11, 12 Sullivan's? What? The Sullivan's was the first uh, yeah right who were you in the Sullivan's? I played a character called Frank Errol who was a little boy who whose father was at war and he went to uh, live with uh, Terry Sullivan for a while and then with Mrs. Jessup next door. Wow. Um, uh, great, great memories. Um, uh, so he, my dad also very much instilled in me, which is something I, I still kind of probably um, uh, am very much, ha- you know, have in the back of my head, not to, um, not to be full of yourself or, or to brag or, mm. to, or to be boastful about the fact that you were... An, an actor, you know, and I guess, um, you know, being a kid, that you know, the, the, a fear for, for many parents who have a, a child actor in the family is that they're going to become this little precocious kind of brat who thinks they're they're something special. <clears throat> My dad definitely um, would always um, push and instill in me that you know there was nothing special about that, and you were no different, and. Um, that's certainly something that's that's stayed with me. Ironically, my dad is quite boastful and bragging, br- brags a lot about me now, which is quite interesting, yeah. given yeah. that he was so... I often say, <laughs> oh, Dad, you, you spent my entire life telling me not to brag, and now all you want to do is post stuff about me on social media. He's great, your dad. We all know him because he, he, he we've met him at all the award shows. He's your plus one. In many, in many yes. times, how did so? So, what, it was unusual in those days for it to have, be brought up by a single dad. Mm. So, what what happened there? If you uh, look, I, 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 um, I um, he, he, yeah, it was very unusual. I mean, he, he, got, he got um, custody. Um, I, look, I, I don't really. It's been a while since I've even asked about it. I think it was a situation that, um, uh, he, he. He really wanted to have custody, and uh, my mum had a new relationship. And, yeah, right. And she was, I, I, I guess, didn't want to take away his kids from him as well as mm. have him lose his partner. You know, and, makes sense. Um, and but we kept seeing my mum as well. And is your brother an older brother or younger? He's two years older. Okay, right. Okay. And when did just just to touch on the acting side of things? When did your dad decide? Oh, might be a good idea to get young Damon an agent. <laughs> um, well, we were living in Alice Springs at the time, and my dad had started doing radio commercials in Alice Springs. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is, like, and they were unp- unpaid. What, as a voiceover? As a, as a, as a voiceover artist. Really? <laughs> um, um, I've got some tape, cassette tapes of his, his voiceover uh, from the time. Um, and it was a thing, it was weird, you didn't get paid to do them. He, he, uh, he, you, you did them as like a 
privilege. Like like amateur theatre or something. It was like amateur theatre, and he was doing amateur theatre, and they would get people from the amateur theatre company to come in and do radio commercials. But for brands, I mean, they were brand name companies that got free voiceover talent. I don't know how that's <laughs> great. How that worked. But anyway, there was a, there were a series of father son commercials for. Uh, as they were called then Nestle's chocolates of course it's mm. Nestle now but they were called Nestle's back yeah. in the 70s <laughs> and um, and my dad my dad said oh well, my son sort of does little kind of acting things for the family and stuff maybe I could get do it with him seeing as a father and son so we did these <clears throat> did these ads together and then um my dad kind of got excited about these these commercials these radio commercials that we'd done and um uh decided that perhaps I could be an actor and we were going to be moving back to Adelaide where, where, where I was born and my dad wrote a letter to Peter Weir who, uh, you know, a legendary wow. film director who at the time I guess had done Picnic and Hanging Rock and maybe he'd done The Last Wave at that point as well. Um, Peter Weir wrote back, I still have the letter, uh, so, you know, saying what's your advice? I think my son could be an actor and Peter Weir said, oh, well, if you're going to be going to Adelaide look up this agent, Ann Peters, who was the only agent in Adelaide. We did that, went to, went to Adelaide, I think sent her the tapes of the Nestle's commercials and um, went and did an interview with her and she took me on. So I, I then kind of started doing TV commercials as a kid in Adelaide and about, I don't know, 18 months after that, the role in the Sullivans came up. That's brilliant. And what did your dad actually do? What was his He worked for an insurance company. Okay, and so keen amateur... Uh, Theatre person. Yeah, he was sort of and doing. He got. He, he was sort of doing amateur theatre as a as a as a hobby, really. Yeah. And and he, from he then got into doing a bit of screen work after that, mainly a bit of extra work. He 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 um he's also for those with a keen eye who have seen the film Candy. He's the celebrant who marries uh, Heath Ledger and Abby Cornish. Uh, very very small role. You're looking you're looking like yeah. You know, remind me of the celebrant. Yeah, yeah no, I did for some reason. Major, I did. Well, I've seen the know, film twice. I think uh, it's a remarkable. I mean, film. it's just a guy. He's just standing yeah, yeah. saying, "Do you take?" You know. <laughs> Unfortunately, for copyright reasons, I can't play the scene. But in it, Damon's dad Noel is acting in front of Heath Ledger, Abby Cornish, Jeffrey Rush, Tom Budge, Noni Hazelhurst, Tony Martin. It's a crowd of. Very heavy hitters that would make a lesser man nervous. But Noel's great. It's great talking about your dogs. I've met him a few times now. Um, he loves you, mate. Oh, thank you, mate. Uh, I think question six we're up to, and that is when was the last time you cried and why? Um, yeah, look, I don't cry a lot uh, in life. I tend to get a bit teary um, if I if I watch... Uh, a sad movie or a sad news story. I think the last time I cried was probably watching Lion. So I think that was the last time. But I look, I there are probably other times I've forgotten. You know, if I'm if I'm watching a um, you know a good documentary or something where there's something particularly moving, I'll 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 tear up. Um, but it tends to happen more in in uh, like yeah, having an actual life cry. Um, I don't do that often. That probably only I reckon I only would would have that happen maybe once every eighteen months, two years. And can you cry uh, when when needed to on screen? I, I can, uh, not always. I find I, I wish I found it easier. Um, uh, I, I love it. It's a great feeling when it happens. When when, yeah. when you have a scene where it either requires you to cry or you feel like 
the scene would be enhanced by that. It's it's a great feeling when you get there, and it's an yeah. incredibly frustrating one when you don't, because it's it's kind of for me out of my control. It's like you know, it's a bit like sneezing. I mean, you can fake a sneeze, but that's mm. not a sneeze. That's yeah. just you making a noise like a sneeze. <sighs> and I, I feel like crying is a bit the same. It's like you can fake that you're crying, but that's not actually crying. You know, you, <laughs> and, and, and you, you genuinely need to be moved to tears to yeah. cry. And um, uh, yeah, I've certainly had acting scenes where I have been able to, and then other ones where um, where I haven't. Um, I, I, I wish, you know, I, I envy those actors who can turn it on like a tap. Question seven. What is your current state of mind, Damon? W- regret, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Which question did you start <laughs> feeling the regret? <laughs> All of them. To some yeah. um, <laughs> I'm pretty content, I would say. Um, I, I feel happy. I feel lucky. I, feel, mm. I definitely feel lucky. Um, I'm very aware, certainly in terms of you know, career stuff, how much luck comes into it and you know i have i have so many friends who are incredibly talented actors who are either not working or are not working as much as they should or are working but aren't working at a level that they want to be working and um the only thing that separates them and me, I, I feel, to, to a large degree, is just the uh, timing and, and right place, right time, and you know. Um, well, you got there's that, that. I mean, that's that's really you're being modest there. But not only is the talent thing a factor, but also you took a risk by coming here in 2005. You're pretty much a, a, an early adopter of. Australians coming to LA. I mean, it probably weren't. Is it 2005 you came here yeah, or earlier? But I mean, you know, there weren't many. I mean, now there's 40,000 Australians in LA. Right. There weren't that many when you came over, and it would have been a challenge. It would have been a risk, and you and you took that risk. Yeah, what was I it? guess it didn't feel like a huge risk so much as. I mean, it's funny. I've I've uh, I've. Uh, <laughs> I don't want people to think I'm obsessed with regret. It really sounds <laughs> But I, my whole coming here in the first place, I, I called it regret insurance. That was my kind of yeah. thing. As, as opposed to, it was never a, um, as, as it is for a lot of people, and I kind of envy them in, in, in a way, who have that drive and that I'm going to show them, I'm going to go get them, and Hollywood, here I come. I'm, you know, that, that, that feeling of, I'm, yes, this is my destiny to go and work in America, and I'm going to make it happen. I never had that. So regret insurance. Much a, Re- regret insurance means so you don't regret it later yeah, in life. Yeah, okay, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be eighty, going. You know, when I did that film House of Wax that was American that we shot in Queensland, I probably could have gone to America and tried to get an agent out of that, and I didn't. And I, God, now. I'm never going to know what would have happened. And so for me, that's why I did come over after I did House of Wax. It was because I didn't want to regret not doing it. It was so that I could put to bed that regret. Or so great. I could put to bed so, so that I could say, yeah, no, I tried that. In fact, I tried it under the best circumstances I could. I had an American credit and I went over there on the back of an American film yeah. at the time the film was coming out and it didn't work out. So at least I know, no worries. You know, yeah. Whereas... Had I not done it, I always would have been wondering. So that that was, you know, I, 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 I but it didn't ever feel like it. 
a risk in a way because I wasn't really giving anything up to do it and I only was coming for for three months and that's what I used to do is I would just come over here for three months and then go home for three or four months and then yep. come back here for three months so it was just kind of a, a, a very slow and steady thing um, again just and, and you know because I'm very much you know I think a realist about these things. I, I, I was like, you know, I'm a 35-year-old actor who plays kind of character roles. I don't really have any big credits that they know apart from this little role in House of Wax. Why am I going to have a career here over anyone else? There's no, there's no, there's no exciting kind of angle to me. You know, I'm not, I'm not that guy that was in that movie at Sundance. I'm just some guy. So I was always thinking, well, this is probably not going to happen. But, <laughs> but then I would, after a couple of trips, I hadn't got any work, and then the third trip was going to be my last. I, that oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just figured if I'd done three trips of three months each mm. over two years and nothing had happened at all, like hadn't even got a callback or something, then, uh, then I would be thinking, well, then I'm deluded if I keep coming back because... I've been, it's been proven that, that I'm not going to get work here. That's how I was thinking. And then I got on that third trip, I got one guest role on one show. And that kind of changed everything because that made me then go, oh, it's possible. It's, it's real. Gone from impos- it's gone from impossible to possible uh, just from that one little job. And what was the job? It was an episode of a show called The Unit, um, which was a CBS show created by David Mamet, the, the yeah. filmmaker. And by just pure luck, he happened to be the writer-director of that episode. So my very first film this was David Mamet. Was David Mamet, yeah. That would have been interesting working with him because he's written so many books on acting and mm. things like that. Well, and I hadn't read any of them, but I immediately went and bought True and False, I think. It's yeah, called. yeah. True or False? True, true or False. True or False. True. Yeah. Damon was right. It's called True and False, and it's Mammoth's instructional guide to acting, a formula based on common sense and being loyal to the script. Um, because I was about to shoot this thing with him, and I thought, well, he's going he's gonna to be asking me things or, or using his techniques in his direction. Yeah. I'm not going to know what he's talking about. <laughs> so I don't want to look like an idiot. So I read his book, and I'm all there ready to kind of talk about actions and objectives and things that didn't do it any, didn't do any of it none of it i mean he just in fact his only direction was um faster david just see it faster no worries which i thought was funny because he's kind of known for rapid fire dialogue yeah yeah thought, i guess faster then I, I can do that i can do i can do faster um but he was lovely he was lovely i actually ended up working um two other times with him after that really what on i did uh, six months later, I did a small role in a film called Red Belt that he... he yeah. Um, and then about... <laughs> he obviously lost interest after that. About eight years passed, and um, I got this call one day from his assistant um, asking whether I was in Los Angeles on a particular date, and I was in New York at the time. And um, I said, uh, well, I'm in New York doing this, this show... Um, and uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to be in Los Angeles then. Cause I'm thinking, well, I want to hear what this is about because maybe I can be. And she said, well, okay, well, I'll tell you what it is. Uh, basically, Dave's got a new play. It's a two-hander, and he hasn't heard it out loud, so he just wants to hear it read, uh, really. And so it would just be a reading with, with you and, uh, and Dave and Al Pacino. And I, my, my, I picked my jaw up off the floor said, 
hold on, sorry, you're saying that I would be reading a new play of Dave's with Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's mainly, it's mainly yeah. Al. It's, he's the lead, but, you know, it's a two-hander. And, and I said, um, I, I'm positive I can be in LA on that day. I'll just, let me, just let me get back to you. Wow. And, and I, so you did that? Yeah, I did that. And, I mean, it was just... Was it... it was just like... A, a you and Alan, Pinch Dave. yourself, you know, the most sort of pinch yourself... It was four people in a in a in a, a boardroom at a hotel. David Mamet, uh, Al Pacino, uh, the director who had just won the Tony Award for Best Director, and me. It was ridiculous, and of course, the whole time you're just sitting there thinking, how would people behave in this situation if they genuinely felt like they should be here? And, and I should try and act like that. <laughs> Whatever that is. Like, you know, you're trying to sit in a relaxed fashion. Do relaxed people cross their legs? I think <laughs> I think relaxed people cross their legs. I'll cross my legs. This feels contrived. I won't cross my legs. Yeah, it was pretty, you know, pretty. It was pretty. I know people overuse surreal, but it was surreal. Do you get starstruck at, at all? Or were you pretty, are you contained in, um, that, in that sense? I... I mean, inside, I don't, I don't go kind of gaga externally, mm. but inside, uh, I was pretty starstruck to be sitting. That's uh, right, a yeah. From Al Pacino and, and and looking in his eyes and acting with him. That was the thing. And going, I'm looking at, you know, and he was brilliant. Even in that read, he was. It was the most effortless acting I'd ever seen. I was just thinking, how do you make this seem so effortless and so interesting at the same time? I'm probably more likely to get starstruck by a musician. I think, you know, if I, yeah. if I sort of if I met a Beatle or something, I would be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With me, it's sports people, but but right. but sometimes when I'm acting, I haven't acted with the names that you have, but sometimes like in the middle of the scene, I'll go, "Hang on, I'm I'm acting opposite X." It's a, right. It's well, weird. that that did happen. The other the other time that that happened to that degree was I I had a small role in a, a film called Jay Edgar, which was yeah um, uh, directed by Clint Eastwood and starred Leonardo DiCaprio. So that was again a bit like being in that room where I'm trying to act as normally and and um, relaxed as possible. But there were definitely times where there would be a three-way conversation in the middle of the room and it was me and those two guys and you're just looking at... It's just, you're standing there. That's Clint Eastwood just there and that's Leonardo DiCaprio. That, why am I here? This doesn't make any sense. But, of course, you know, the, the other thing you do realise in a lot of these situations is these people are completely normal and lovely. And, in fact, yeah. I think to some degree the more legendary the more normal and relaxed mm. you know it's kind of that mid-level of fame that you often find people misbehave or, or or think they're a bit important but those two were completely lovely people yeah and really easy going and easy to talk to in jay edgar damon played bruno richard hauptmann the german-born carpenter who was convicted of the 1932 abduction and murder of the 20-month-old son of aviator Charles Lindbergh, which caused a massive media sensation and resulted in Holtman being executed. Um, question eight. Question eight. What do you consider your greatest achievement? Yeah, that, that's a tough one because I feel like 
again, going back to kids, I'm sure most people say they're kids if they have kids. Yeah, and it gets boring, so yeah. you know, I'm glad we don't have kids. What if I say my kids and I don't have kids? That would be less boring. <laughs> because that's a, that's a twist on the answer. We'll do a fact-checking. Um. <laughs> um, it's a hard question to answer if you don't have kids or aren't a scientist or something, because <laughs> it's only going to be a selfish one, really. You know, like I haven't... I haven't you know, invented something that's going to help the world or um, or created human beings. So I feel like, you know, I guess my greatest achievement personally, I suppose, is a bit pathetic, but it's just getting to work in America, which is something I, mm. as a kid, only ever dreamed of and never would have imagined um, it actually happening. And so getting to work with... Um, people I really respect on, on, on um, jobs that I, you know, 10 years ago would have been... I mean, it's, it's, it's all relative, these things, and, you, and, and you know, the, the bar keeps changing based on where you're at at a particular time. Yeah, but, you yeah. know, that, that very first guest role with David Mamet seemed like, you know, for me at the time would have been like for someone else like winning an Oscar because it felt like that big a deal to me. Yeah. You know, because I couldn't believe that I that I I was going to be working with David Mamet today. Um and then, you know, th- these things keep these things keep uh, changing um and and what your idea of an achievement is keeps moving mm. on on um, But you need to hang on to how you felt, you know, the night ab- before. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and yeah, look, I feel really, as I said before, I feel, just feel incredibly lucky with um, the way things have gone and the opportunities I've had here, which have led to opportunities at home, and I'm loved that I'm, I'm still working at home as well. Yeah. Um, and that's come about to a large degree because of working here. It's one of those things you know, that happens where you work in America, you're exactly the same actor you were in Australia. So <laughs> when people you know, want you to do um, bigger and better jobs... It's there. amazing how much value Australians put on hopping on a plane <laughs> yeah and travelling 15 hours somewhere yeah and, and being accepted by other people other, other countries people in other countries what do other people say to that question that don't have kids what do you consider your greatest achievement mm. um, I mean do they, does it kids, become kids, a, kids. Does it a personal one because you know I, I mean unless you also happen to be someone who built an orphanage or something no, they talk about they. They generally talk about. Um, mate, I can't remember. <laughs> so I had to listen back to previous interviews, and people list their greatest achievements as kids, kids making great television, kids surviving, speaking French, kids spelling the word symmetrical, and appearing in the feature film The Nugget. If you have kids and don't answer kids to that question. <laughs> Oh, then man. you're going to seem like a really bad person. Yeah, yeah. It's like, who would you like to apologise to? A lot of people get offended by that question. Um, you know, because... They get well, offended? well, it's like coming out of rehab. Someone, you know, you've got your list of people you need to apologise to and say, I feel like I need... An, say you've been to rehab and I feel like I need an apology from you and I don't get it. And I hear you've apologised to Trent. Just a warning to future interviewees, this well-meaning podcast has actually caused a lot of pain when people who expect an apology from the interview subject don't get one, so be careful of that. Also be careful of the seemingly innocuous question, when were you most happy? If you don't say your wedding day. 
Or when your first child was born, you're fucked. Right. It's got to be one of those two, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, Question nine, mate. Who would you want on your side in a battle and why? And it could be a physical battle or a show business battle. Well, I was going to ask you that. Yeah, yeah. Like a physical, because I would just want, obviously, if it's physical, I'd want some very large, tough... Brendan Cowell. (laughs) Steve Lamarckland and... Yeah. uh, (laughs) And Chris Hemsworth, he's yeah, handy. yeah, for sure. Yeah, any of the Hemsworths, um, uh, they can all fight, I'd imagine. But yeah, do you do you mean that more in like someone who's got your back? Or? It's open to interpretation. Yeah, I think it would, it would for me. I can't foresee a physical battle taking place of any kind. So I think, um, but in terms of uh, uh, you know um, someone having your back, I, I, I have a really good group of close friends, mm. and I I feel like um, I just they're very loyal uh, my friends and I, I, I feel I would you know I would happily go into battle with uh, or for any of them because um, I, I, I do feel a very a very special bond with my my, my friends and I, you know I have a lot of friends but I, I have a, a you know like most people are particularly tight Mm. A group of friends who I feel definitely um, are very loyal and have certainly been uh, incredible in in times of need for me. That's great. And the final question, mate, what would you like your last words to be? I I think I'd like my last words to be something like, um, I had no idea death was so painless. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. 